you're listening to Second Cherry, almost a Eurovision podcast. My name is Monty Moncrief. And I'm Matt Baker. Welcome to our second show. Now, you, if you heard the first show, you'll know the format by now. We take songs that didn't win their national finals, didn't get selected for Eurovision, and we give them a second chance, a second bite of the cherry. This week, we're going to be looking at our home country. We're going to be looking at the United Kingdom. So, welcome, Matt. Welcome, Monty. <laughs> we have bought lots of wine for this episode. Oh, we think. have. We're going to need it as well to get through this. Now, so, last week, we looked at Norway. We selected Merland as our second cherry entrant, our first one. Strong start. A strong start, indeed. And this week, we're going to be selecting our United Kingdom entry. Wow. So, United Kingdom at Eurovision. Well, we are we are one of the most successful countries. If you look at our whole history, <laughs> if you look at our history this millennium, we're actually, I think, statistically one of the worst, if not the worst. Did somebody do that analysis? Yeah, is it we, the second to last or something like that? Oh, something like that. remember, yeah. yeah. I mean, who knows? It's bad. Were we, <laughs> were we slightly, slightly better than Andorra? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's where we are in the Eurovision scale, folks. We're slightly better than Andorra. So, UK has had five wins at Eurovision, starting in 1967 with Pop It On A String, performed by Sandy Shaw. And we won two years later, uh, or we co-won two years later, with Lulu singing Boom Bang a Bang. That year, of course, was the year that the prize was shared by four countries. So maybe that's four and a quarter wins that we have, rather than five full wins. Yeah. But never mind, we're going to claim Lulu as our own. Uh, we won again in 1976 with uh, Save Your Kisses For Me yes. and The Brotherhood of Man. One of that, my favourite. Yeah, it was one of the first songs I remember being a kid, actually. They'd come on the radio and my mum and I would sing along to it. And then we only had to wait another five years until we won again. Um, probably our, our, our most popular win, I think, with uh, Bucks Fizz, mm. um, with uh, Making Your Mind Up. It was a long, or so it felt at the time, 16 years before we won again in 1997, Katrina and the Waves with Love Shine a Light, but we've had to wait even longer for the next victory, which we are still waiting <laughs> still for. Still waiting. Of course. We're still really waiting for another go in the top 10, because even that's sort of as rare as hen's teeth now, isn't it? <laughs> Well, precisely. I, do you know, I, there are a couple of exceptions, so don't write at us, but something to point out is that when the UK sends an artist or a group that contains person of colour, we do well. Oh. Andy Abrahams, you know, aside, if you go back and you, you have a look, Jade Ewan, Blue, yeah. at a push. None of our winners, though. No, but, you know... I would take 11th place. I would take 11th place in the Netherlands. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We'd take anything higher than 15. We'd take anything on the left-hand yeah. side of the scoreboard at the moment. It's been so dire for us. Uh, and unfortunately, 2019 was not the year to change those fortunes. No. No. So, cast your minds back to the 8th of February, 2019, and the UK final took place... This year in Manchester, after holding it in relatively high-profile venues, such as the Apollo in Hammersmith and the Dome in Brighton, this year we went to the BBC's base in Salford, Intermedia City, and it was held in Dock 10, 
which has hosted other shows including The Voice UK and All Together Now. And the national final, Wikipedia reliably informs me, was watched by 1,170,000 viewers in the UK. Um, it's not bad for a BBC Four slot, but you kind of just think, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have this a little bit more high profile you know remember the days that it used to be friday night on the on bbc one and everyone would watch and we'd all vote in or in the days before televoting we all send our postcards in to uh, to to try and select which uh, song we wanted to win yeah but i mean you know the semi-finals i can understand where you won't put it on a main channel okay but you're selecting a song for eurovision there's interest in that absolutely the public should be behind you mm. Not that there was a lot to get behind this year, but we are going to look at it anyway. We are going to see what we can salvage from the wreckage. <laughs> oh, go on. <laughs> and choose as our second cherry entrant. So firstly, let's talk about the format. It was a new format for 2019, whereby we still have six songs, so to speak, but there were two versions each of three songs. So we had three different songs, two versions of one, two versions of another, two versions of the third song. So six songs in total, and so therefore six artists. A change which I'm not sure works, personally. No, uh, it didn't really work for me either. I mean, I think, you know, there was there was merit in getting fewer songs. If you haven't got six songs of good quality, there was merit of having fewer songs. But for me... I think the dual format showed up the weakness of each song twice, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, if you haven't got a very strong song and you're going to perform it twice, people get to hear the flaws of that song yeah. twice. And also, having each song sung in a different style indicated to me that whilst these songs have a versatility and lend themselves to be performed in different ways, it suggests to me that they were written to be a bit formulaic and to allow for different interpretations of them, rather than writing a song that specifically is meant to be performed and delivered in a particular style, not one that kind of flip-flops between the genres. Yeah, and I think you've got songs here that all three of the songs, all six versions... I don't think are Eurovision songs. I don't think... I mean, it's easy for us to say now that we know the result of Michael, but, you know, we always knew that wasn't going to be a great result for us. We knew that. I think that's. I think we can say that. Mm. But um, these weren't... You know, we talk a lot about songs for Eurovision. We say how you can send a commercial song to Eurovision. You can send a Balkan ballad. You can send, you can send anything to Eurovision but the key ingredient is authenticity and is that singer artist um on stage delivering a performance that is believable and authentic and let's be crude about it is going to grab votes and none of those songs i don't think were vote grabby i agree with you and i think we knew as fans the first time we heard them that that was what was going to happen we knew we weren't going to get a good result mm. Um, so there's almost that kind of like heart sinking inevitability about it and it makes me wonder why if we as fans can instantly sense that this is going to be the kind of result that we're going to get 
even before we knew many of the songs because our, our final was held quite early this year yeah it was held in early february we still had another month of songs to be selected and quite a lot of songs particularly the internally selected songs we didn't get to hear until nearer the submission deadline but even though we hadn't heard everything we didn't know what competition we were going to be up against we knew that these songs none of them were going to perform particularly well at eurovision and that for me is one of the fatal flaws in where the BBC feels to be at Eurovision at the moment. They can select songs. None of these songs were terrible. No. None of these songs were awful songs or badly written songs, but none of them were the kind of songs that is going to set the scoreboard alight at Eurovision these days. And I think part of it is that authenticity. If you look at the winners that have won in recent years, you've got artists which are very very connected to those songs somebody like Jamala singing a song which is about her personal family history and doing it in a very authentic style someone like Salvador Sobral who's singing a very passion sort of passionate song and very heartfelt song it feels very genuine to him and Netta winning with Toy um, which felt you know very much kind of it was it wasn't written by her but it was written with her in mind and it was very much kind of bringing together the elements of what she does as a performer. Yeah, what's really important here is it's authenticity, yes, but it's also about storytelling. There's discussion going on. As we as we record this episode, there's discussion going on online in the UK fan group about the... It's, it's largely a discussion about the involvement of fans in the selection of the songs for You Decide, but it does touch on the wider aspect of the the BBC and the UK choosing its song and I think this isn't an issue that the BBC can't solve there are people there who do get Eurovision who do understand it it isn't this a blanket moan about the BBC there are people in that delegation who understand who are fans themselves and my question is how early do those people come on to the project how much say do they have and I think that's what the problem is. That's where it lies. Where authenticity, where's the storyteller? Where's the artist with a story to tell? They absolutely have to tell this story and they have to tell it in this way. That is what wins Eurovision. That's what does well at Eurovision. We don't have that. We've never had that, really. No, we don't. And I think for me, some of I don't I don't pretend to know what the answer is. Um, so it's very easy for us to sit here and be critical. It is. It is. Um, and I'm I'm very aware I'm not coming up with a, a solution. But there's something about where we gather those songwriters from. I think there is a bit of um, brand damage uh, about Eurovision in the UK. It's not seen as an aspirational thing to take part in. No. And I think other countries now with with Eurovision changing and the modern contest I think it is being seen as a little bit more aspirational in some countries and of course it is a shop window for artists who don't have the kind of music scene in their own national countries um, that we benefit from in the UK so I think there are you know there are definitely things that the BBC could be looking at if you haven't seen it, uh, uh, there's a really great article by uh, Roy Delaney, who's a Eurovision fan journalist, um, and he's written on the onEurope.co.uk site uh, an open letter to the BBC about the selection process, um, and he makes some really really good points in there. But I think the the overall thrust of that letter really is a plea to be bolder. 
to be you know to be braver in the choices that we're putting up there to not be thinking about can we get a song that's going to sound good at eurovision but can we take maybe some of the styles and genres of music that the uk is known for yeah. and just put something very authentic on the eurovision stage and that's not again it's not being scared of failure because now and i'm going to say this electric velvet was a bold choice that okay a lot of people i mean that was didn't do very well a lot of people did not like that and were vocal about it but do you know what the more vocal people are positive or negative you know that you've touched on something and yeah it wasn't my favorite song but that was a bold choice by the bbc and i think that's what they should be doing more of Yes, you certainly can't accuse Electra Velvet of not provoking a reaction, <laughs> <laughs> whichever way that reaction was. But but, but we've moaned uh, a little bit about the uh, the selection the the UK now. Let's actually have a look at what we had this year. So as Matt was saying, we had three different songs, uh, and they were they were put together in duels, competing against each other, but sang in a different genre. So the first of those duels was the song "Sweet Lies," and the first version of that was by Carrie Ann. Don't tell me where you've been. Don't wanna hear a thing. Don't tell me where you've been. Yes, Kerry Ann. Now, I I like this version. This was my um, my personal pick, mm-hmm. not the one that I would have sent to Eurovision. I actually would have sent Michael, but um, this was my personal favorite. When you put it up against the songs that are at Eurovision, um, I said to you when we watched this earlier, Monty. Mm-hmm. When you look at say Cyprus this year, Tanta and her performance and the song. This version by Carrie Ann would have sort of paled in significance really to it. It would have been a lesser version. So I'm not sure we would have got much of a better result. However, Carrie Ann can sing. She's a good singer. She delivered a performance that you think would have transferred to a bigger stage, but still question marks about the song for me. Yeah, I like this version as well. And I think it's that kind of song that we all felt would be a bit of a hit in the Euro Club. Um, something we would have enjoyed dancing to. Um, Which but, has come to fruition. That is still played in Euro Club, in yeah. the Euro Play, and we do dance to it. Well, indeed, yeah. But uh, So it's got a, a life beyond Eurovision in the, the fan communities. Um, but you're right. I mean, when you thinking about what you said about the comparison with Tamta, this was no Sasha Jean-Baptiste choreography no. um, for a performance. And I think, for me, this is something that was throughout the UK selection. What we were watching was the filmed version of a performance on stage. It wasn't a choreographed for television performance. So if you look at a song like Too Late for Love by John Lundvik um, in Sweden, and the way that that was choreographed, all the camera angles, just getting it right, with him in shot, him slightly out of shot, it was him looking down the camera, and it was him performing to the viewers at home. Throughout the UK national final this year it were they were performing to the room 
and the camera was just filming what they were doing. There's a real difference in the production value of how this is sold to the viewer. And I think, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you that Carrie Ann had a fun song, but I think put her on stage next to that competition, and yeah, I can't see her having done much better than Michael did. No, I agree. So what about Anissa's version, the slower version of this? Skin to skin, our love is paper thin. Honey, just skin to skin. Don't tell me where you've been. Don't wanna hear a thing. Don't tell me where you've been. Keep telling me lies. Keep telling me sweet, sweet lies. Keep telling me lies. Keep giving me hugs. This, uh, I think they got the running order um, from Anissa's point of view um, the wrong way around because Anissa was always going to struggle after Kerry's sort of upbeat performance and then it was this slower version and it felt slow. It felt too slow. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's it. Maybe maybe the better version was Kerry Ann's and then the BBC had to try and find another version of this song, <laughs> which you, it yeah. isn't out of the realm's possibility. You know, this is how things work. And so they just slowed it down and it, and you could tell. I did like the, the quality of her voice. She did seem a little bit... Um, she did seem a little bit like rabbit caught in headlights, but kind of towards the end, I think, grew in, in, in stature a little bit. But... Yeah, this was this was always going to be the second choice of the song, and indeed it was the second choices of the jurors. So the format this year, each of the duels was judged by the three expert jurors, the panel, which was made up of Ryland Clark Neal and Marvin Hughes and Molly King. And it was a unanimous decision by them to put Kerry Ann's version through to the second round. Now that format for me also didn't work this year because it, it kind of felt that, you know, you've got three of those six performers to put all of the effort into preparing their songs. And before the public even got a sniff of it, one of them had been eliminated. Um, it just felt as if I don't mean, I, I don't want to accuse the BBC of sort of already having made their minds up. I don't want to um, question the integrity of the panel, but it just felt as though it could be interpreted as well. We already know which ones we want to put through, and it means that the decisions made. If you're going to have a public vote, I think the public should be involved at all of the stages of it even if it's a 50 50 with the jury i don't think the public should be left out of one of the stages so the next song that we had was a song called freaks and again we had two different versions of it the first one was by jordan clark so if you've had enough then Okay, so where to start with this? 
Okay. I would start with the first line and that terrible rhyme. Oh, <laughs> in God. the last episode, we were talking about that terrible rhyming couplet at Eurovision. Bubble and uh, trouble. The bubble and trouble. And this was a prime contender also for that fire higher desire cup uh, that we should award each year for the worst rhyme at Eurovision. Maybe we should give this cup to... Maybe so, we should do this at the so end of the podcast maybe series. Maybe we should. We'll, we'll come back to that, maybe. <laughs> so, Freaks was a song of the, the misfits of the world. The people who have been downtrodden, um, who've been picked on in life, who've been bullied. Um, and it was an empowering song um, of uh, you know bringing those people together in, in celebrating um, their difference. Yeah, the only way I can really review this is to just look at positives and negatives the positive is that there is a trend for this sound and that is the the greatest showman you know the male vocalist on stage sort of commandeering this this performance and and on that level it worked for me but it didn't work for me when you look at what the song is about the lyrics the it is a call to action for freaks and I just you know I'm not the first person to say this but Jordan it doesn't fit that mold for me without making too many assumptions I don't know him in you know his personal story um I don't know what struggles he's got personally but he's white he's male he looks pretty good looking guy um I don't see what is freak freakish about him you know, when you look at, say, the show Glee and how popular that was, and it was made up of a bunch of perceived misfits, that's the sort of vibe I wanted to get from stage from, from um, on stage from this song. I didn't get that. It's, you know, it felt very contrived and a million miles away from what we've just been talking about, authenticity. Yeah, you kind of got the impression that he hadn't really had to struggle for much in his life. Although he might have been picked on for that hairdo. Maybe. <laughs> if, I, I don't know his sexuality. If he's gay, maybe he's had some. I don't know. But... It didn't... It, there was an, in, an incongruence to the song and the performer. And I think that also carried over into the performance by Maid. Maid were a three-piece uh, group put together from a woman who worked in the West End. Um, and they were brought together for um, the show. And actually, they said afterwards that this was their first performance together. And I'm sorry, but you could tell. Um, yeah. Let's just take a listen now and see what you guys think. So there was no real difference in the harmonies to the voices there, I thought. there's It kind of was a bit sort of monotone, whereas you could have got a little bit of a richer sound in there. But again, there was nothing particularly freakish about the women. Um, there was a few sort of contrived faces, a bit of gurning going on when they were delivering some of the lyrics. And a bit kind of... You know, wide eyes. Of wide eyes and, you know some strange stares but it again it felt like it was trying to create this feeling of difference rather than it being something which was inherent within the performers i mean they were dressed for clubbing they were dressed for going out mm -hmm. there were three you know beautiful women on stage 
um, I just didn't get I didn't get the the performance whatsoever um, the vocals were a little bit off I'm not sure they blend well together but fine that that's absolutely fine but I want to point out that the level of performance that we're getting in the national final isn't up to scratch and how my best example of that is go back and Google Little Mix their X Factor performance it was the Halloween special and they did E.T. Uh, Extraterrestrial by Katy Perry and that performance was freaky they're addressed as these sort of weird dolls they're on swings and and that's the level of performance that I expected if you're singing a song about freaks and it's a slowed down slightly off key um, sort of performance then go a hundred percent in that direction have makeup break break them down make them look like broken dolls make them look freakish and deliver something like that and then you can believe it a little bit more but there were three beautiful young women on stage in club attire they looked perfectly fine didn't fit with the song a lot of the performers in the uk finalists year had sort of cut their teeth on talent shows or you know had worked um they weren't they'd worked on the West End, they weren't necessarily known artists. Some were producers, um, some were songwriters, um, so they didn't really have very much of a high profile, with the exception maybe of Holly Tandy and Michael Rice, who sang the third song, which we'll come to in a minute. But uh, does it matter for you that the song, that, that the performer is known or not? No, I don't. I think it's down to the the core skills. Are they comfortable on stage? Mm-hmm. If they're a first-timer but they look absolutely like they own the stage, then who cares how much performance um, Mm. experience they've got? Are they going to deliver the song? And again, it does come back to authenticity. I keep harping on about that. If they believe in the song and really understand what they're meant to be doing, then really that stuff will fall into place. No, I don't think it has to be a big name. It has to be the core skills. Can they sing? Can they perform? And are we going to back them up with good staging Mm. and everything else? But no, it's not that important. Absolutely, I agree with you as well. I mean, if we look even at this year, Duncan Lawrence winning for the Netherlands. Yes, he'd been on The Voice locally, um, but he wasn't an internationally known artist. And this is the first song he's ever recorded. And he's won Eurovision with it. I don't think you need to necessarily have that experience. I think something that's where you've got some experience of performing and you're not going to be overwhelmed by being on that massive stage, the biggest stage you're probably ever going to perform on in your entire life but I don't think you necessarily need to be a known act so I'm not necessarily looking for the BBC to pluck a megastar out of thin air no in a way you don't next year yeah yeah I'm I'm quite happy if they're looking for new performers and I quite like the fact that they've sort of looked for um new younger talent in the past few years um particularly after we've had you know embarrassing performances really by some of the more well some of the most established artists that yes. we have in this country like Engelbert Humperdinck so moving on to the last duel and this was of course uh, the song that got selected for Eurovision bigger than us we had two versions of it one by Michael Rice which won and the other by Holly Tandy
So, Monty, let's, well, let's start with Holly. Uh, she didn't win. She didn't get through. But I really loved this version. I kept, for a moment, I thought she was going to win the duel. For a split second, mm. I thought, wait a minute, I think she's won. But obviously not. She The country vibe um, is something I think is a bit of an untapped potential at Eurovision. You know, when we've had country songs, most recently, Netherlands 2015? The Common Limits. The Common Limits. 14. 14, yeah. Great song really good version of its genre mm-hmm. very good country song um it did quite well so i quite like the idea of us sending a country song a good version of country song which i think this was holly performed it brilliantly for someone who has not the most experience she she absolutely delivered it she was smiling she perf- there was probably the most authentic performance on stage actually mm-hmm. of that national final but ultimately maybe it, this song didn't really go anywhere than it needed to do again we're talking about grabbing votes um, by the scruff of the neck I don't think that yeah version. I mean I quite liked you know who doesn't like a cowboy um, so it was quite nice to have that on stage but I think ultimately it just didn't go anywhere vocally for me yeah. and when you compare it to the vocal delivery of Michael Rice um, then Michael Rice his version won hands down there was, I mean, speaking of hands as well, he should have kept his hands down. There was a lot of controversy about how his arm, his, his arm movements were so widely, um, wildly gesticulating uh, throughout the song. But ultimately, I think he was the better vocal performer. And I think of all of the, um, the, the songs that were in the UK final, the best version of the best song went to Eurovision. Of course, it's difficult to say whether it was the right song when it came last. (laughs) Uh, And it does beg the question, I mean, you know, the other songs, none of them could have done worse than Michael Rice did. Could any of them have done better? Uh, I mean, we could have done worse, but I don't think so, no. I think, uh, you're right, we sent the best version of the best song. I think Michael is a talent that needs nurturing mm-hmm. that's my thought I feel like he needs a lot of direction whether whether he's susceptible to that whether he takes that direction is another question but he he is a real talent and when he hits those notes when he sings and he's in his sweet spot and he's not over singing and doing all the the, the vocal trills were too much for me mm-hmm when he's not doing that when he's just singing plainly and he's just hitting the notes it's brilliant I mean I, I do actually listen to this song a lot um, on the actual recording because it's such a great version it's a really good version but what you get live is then all the vocal trickery and maybe you know their nerves and, and all, all lots of different factors factored in so essentially what you've got there is a decent song but sung by someone who maybe isn't wasn't quite ready for the Eurovision stage. And decent song is probably a good description of it. I think one of the reasons that I felt this song was never going to do well at Eurovision is the way that the voting is structured. To get points from the jury, you have to be one of that jury group's top ten songs to get any points 
And I just felt that this was always going to be a more middling song. I felt that this was going to be a song that most juries ranked from about 12th to 20th. It was never going to be the, the least favourite song by juries. It was never going to be the worst song in the competition. But it just wasn't going to consistently get into that top 10 bracket that it needed to get into in order to score points. And likewise with the televoting, this was never going to be the worst song, um, but it was never going to be the song that many people were going to go, that's the song I'm going to pick up the phone and vote for. So if you're going to fall into the middle ranking at Eurovision, you're going to get nowhere. Yeah. And that, unfortunately for Michael, is exactly what happened. And that's why I think we as fans, when we heard the songs, we could kind of sense where this was going to sit in the in the final ranking and it just wasn't going to be enough to be at the top end of those scales in order to pick up the points you you hit the nail on the head there it is about middle of the road does nothing at eurovision the mm-hmm. safe option now people used to go for safe option get you know middle of the pack fine no middle of the pack is a dangerous place as we've just seen you can come last you, you know, you have, have, have a song that's middling coming last because oh, how does that make sense? It makes perfect sense because no one's mm-hmm. voting for it. Yeah. You know, you look at something like Iceland this year, Hatari, which was BDSM exhibition on stage, um, shouty, screamy, divisive. Divisive. People hated it, but people loved it and yeah. those people that loved it voted for it and got it up the rankings mm-hmm. actually talk about middle of the road it came pretty much was it 11th some sort of middle of the pack 10 Ex- 11. exactly yeah. where you would expect it to come mm-hmm. because half the people like it half the people hate it whereas if everybody just goes meh about your song that's what's dangerous that's what puts you last place at Eurovision not because you've got the worst song yeah and this is precisely what Roy is getting at in the article I mentioned earlier, that boldness, that not being the, the mediocrity in the pack, but being bold, even if it doesn't work, you've taken a chance, you've given it you've given somebody you've given it a different feel to the voters. So we've only got one thing left to do in this episode. Having ripped the songs <sighs> apart, oh no, <laughs> we now have to choose one of them to go forward to be our second cherry choice for Let's the Let's do it. Let's pick our second cherry. So, the song that we've chosen, well, if none of the songs are great, we're at least going to have some fun along the way. And the only song from this year that we felt would give us that fun in the Euro Club was Kerry Ann's version of Sweet Lies. Sweet Lies, yes. Let's be honest, it's a it's it's a good song and it is it was the better version of the song. Let's, you know, yeah, let's have a little dance to it. You know, it we it still gets played in the Euro Club and at the Eurovision events here, especially in the UK. It's. Uh, I think it's going to stay around with us for a little bit. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the one we got. That's adding to Morland's at Leverith Man, and uh, our second, second, second cherry of the year is the UK. It's Sweet Lies with Kerry Ann. So, Monty, who's next week? 
Next week we're going to be back and we're going to Iceland. Ooh. Yes. We're going to be taking the trip as north as we can go and uh, bringing you a review of the song The Kepnin, I think it's called. Yep. My best Icelandic. <laughs> uh, 2019. And uh, we hope that you'll join us for that episode and you'll find out what Iceland's second cherry 2019 will be. So thank you for listening. Uh, do get in touch if you've got any questions or comments. Uh, leave us any comments or give us a review on the podcast apps. Yeah, so you can email us actually. Yes, you can. Yes, or you've got email is hello at secondcherry.vision what is that again? hello at secondcherry.vision <laughs> so yeah and also all on our socials so we've gave you it before it's uh, search for us on Facebook Second Cherry search for us on Twitter Second at Second Cherry at Second Cherry mm-hmm. and then on Instagram we're it, uh, Second underscore Cherry but you should be able to find us just by searching to be honest yes and we look forward to uh, joining you again next week yep Take care for now and we'll see you next week. See you. Bye. Bye.